We're continuing. Title. Got it? All right. Series through the book of John. We've entitled, You May Believe. As you make your way there, I covet your prayers this morning. I am uh, quite under the weather and uh, feel my voice starting to go already, so we'll see, we'll see what the Lord does. But we're going to be looking this morning at John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and I want to read through verse 16, and I'd invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 16. Here's what John writes. He says, After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda, in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the, the disabled, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and realized that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the water when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. And instantly, the man got well. He picked up his mat and he started to walk. Now, that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. And he replied, the man who told, who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the, the man who was healed didn't know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And this morning, I just want us to consider this thought of hope for the hopeless. Hope for the hopeless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I beg you that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. Because we need to hear from you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hope for the hopeless. You know, hopelessness can take on different shapes and forms. Sometimes hopelessness seems to be like a festering wound that you know is there. But it seems like no matter how hard you try and stop it from spreading, it just keeps growing. Sometimes the full weight of hopelessness can hit you in an instant, and it leaves you unsure of what your next step should be. The latter was the case for a woman named Laura Holmes had it. Laura is a wife, a mother, and now an author. I stumbled across her writing a few years back when I was trying to find some resources for a friend who had a family member who was recently diagnosed with cancer. You see, Laura writes a good deal on the experience that she had of being treated for cancer. She herself was diagnosed with cancer and survived. Her story, though, has always been very interesting to me. 
See, a few years back at the age of 37, then a mother of two children, ages one and four, she was diagnosed with stage four inflammatory breast cancer. It's a rare but very aggressive form of breast cancer that attacks the lymphatic system around the breast. And it's usually fatal and widespread by the time it's ever actually diagnosed. Unfortunately for her, it was initially misdiagnosed, and by the time they got the diagnosis right, cancer had spread to her lymph nodes and to a rib, and so she started chemotherapy. Unfortunately, after two rounds of chemotherapy, her tumor was still growing, and so her oncologist gave her the news that she was dreading. There was nothing more that they could do for her. Basically, she was told, now you die. And she recounts and recalls the overwhelming sense of hopelessness that hit her with those few words, there's nothing more that we can do. She had no options and she had no hope. But then just one day later, another random oncologist at a comprehensive cancer center who somehow got a hold of her file called her and said, I think there's a clinical trial that might work for you. Now, obviously, hearing that news, a little bit of hope is restored. To make a long story short, this oncologist got her into this clinical trial, even though the window for admittance had already been closed. She went through this clinical trial. It was a brutal six months, and the study drug ended up shrinking her tumor enough for her to become a surgical candidate. After surgery, she continued on medicine, and after two years, was declared to have no evidence of the disease. And when she tells her story, at least when I heard it, I was struck by the fact that this chance encounter with a random oncologist at another treatment facility not only saved her life, but gave her back something that was immensely precious, gave her back hope. You see, in our story this morning, we encounter another man who is, by all accounts, hopeless. And through another chance encounter we witness as hope is extended to the hopeless. I don't know, church. I just got to believe this morning that this text has to be right on time for somebody in this room. Because I know that, I know that we're Christians. I know that we are to be a people, as Romans 15 says, that abounds in hope. But if we could be honest just this morning, if you don't want to be honest, I'll be honest this morning. Even for me as a Christian, I go through seasons I think I'm in a season right now where there just seems to be no hope for healing, for restoration, for deliverance. You gotta be patient with me because I'm gonna preach to myself this morning. And I believe that this text speaks to the reality that in a moment, Jesus is able to provide hope in areas and circumstances and situations where it just seems like all hope is lost. So here's what I want to do this morning. I just want to walk through this text. Uh, I don't have any specific points for you. You know we'll be getting to the end of the sermon when we get close to verse 16, okay? I just want to walk through it, and I just want to show you the majesty of Jesus' ability to offer real hope in the midst of hopeless situations. And I hope to draw a little application on the way. You with me? All right, so let's pick up there in verse 1. It says, after this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went to Jerusalem. So if you remember back to last week, this story that we just read comes on the heels of Jesus healing the royal official's son. We saw an incredible example of what it looks like to have faith in the unseen, where this father is commanded by Jesus, go 
and then told your son will live. The father doesn't have any proof that this is going to happen. He, he, he either has, has to have faith in the unseen or not. But the father believes. And in an incredible picture, his faith becomes sight. When it becomes known to him, to the father, that his son was healed at the exact moment when Jesus made the declaration, your son will live. The man had faith and hope in the words of Jesus. So in some sense, it makes sense that this would be the story that would follow. Because if the father at the end of chapter 4 is a picture of faith and hope, this man is the opposite. If chapter 4 is hope for the hopeful, then the story at the beginning of chapter 5 is indeed hope for the hopeless. So Jesus, what we're told is he travels back to Jerusalem for another festival. We're going to talk about it a little bit next week, but one thing you'll see that's really interesting about the book of John, if you're reading through it, I encourage you to read through it from beginning to end a couple times as we work through this for the next year or so, is you notice that there are these cycles that all center around festivals. And there's a reason for that. The story of Jesus in the book of John is always tied to a festival. Now, we don't know which festival this is. And the author, John, he doesn't seem to think it's significant for us to know we just need to know there's another festival. And so Jesus travels back to Jerusalem. And as he travels back, there's a very specific place that he goes. See it in verses 2 and 3. It says, By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy. It has five colonnades. And within these lay a large number of the disabled, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So, so, so I want you to sp see this because it, it, right at the jump, it speaks to the character and the nature of Jesus. Let me say it like this. I think one of the reasons hopelessness can so easily creep into our lives is because we tend to be in, we tend to find hopelessness in the mess of our life. And for whatever reason, we're tempted to believe that Jesus won't meet us in that mess. But when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he doesn't go to where the important people are. He doesn't go to where the respectable people of the city are, right? He's not looking for the four seasons, the comfort and the luxury that the city can provide. Jesus goes to the place where likely hundreds of disabled people dwelt. This was not the tourist attraction of the city, right? This isn't on Jerusalem's travel brochure. I like how one commentator put it. He said, when Jesus went to Jerusalem, he did not spend his time in elite hostels, nor did he concentrate his ministry merely in the temple or give attention to the rich and the famous who could help him politically and financially with his ministry. He concentrated on the people in need, which for the elite of society was part of their problem with him. Again, here's why I point this out. Often we are tempted to believe that in order for us to encounter Jesus in a meaningful way, we have to clean ourselves up first. We have to be somewhat respectable or presentable. But the crazy thing is, church, right, if we're honest, we know that this isn't true on a practical level, but we still believe it. Because for those of us who are Christians, we have to admit that none of us were prime candidates for salvation. I don't care how good you think you were. None of us were prime candidates for salvation. None of us had cleaned ourselves up enough, gotten our lives together enough, or were respectable enough to merit the grace of God that we have been shown. Jesus met each and every one of us in our mess when we came to faith. And so why do we think he's changed now? Now I want you to hear this. Jesus is not scared of your mess. Jesus isn't deterred by the things in your life that make you feel dirty. Jesus isn't threatened by your sense of hopelessness. If anything, 
It's the prime place for Jesus to meet you. This was the dirty part of Jerusalem. This was the messy part. This was the messy people, and this is where Jesus goes. And while he's there, there's a single individual who gets Jesus' attention. We see it in verses 5 and 6. It says, One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? So we're introduced to this man who will be the focus of this section. We don't know much about him, but one thing we do know is that he'd been disabled for 38 years. So this is speculation, but I think it's probably accurate speculation. It's likely that this has been the entirety of his life, that for 38 years, this man has been marked by disability. That detail is significant. Because John wants us to understand that for this man, this wasn't a hopelessness brought about by a bad day. This wasn't a hopelessness that resulted from a poor decision. This was a hopelessness that defined the very existence of this man's life. There's a weight to this kind of hopelessness. Like Anyone who has ever experienced hopelessness understand how time seems to just stand still. Like Hopelessness can be all-consuming. And this has potentially been the experience of this man for the entirety of his life. And you see it actually in his response to Jesus' question. Because Jesus says to him, do you want to be made well? We're going to come back to that question. But notice the man's response in verse 7. Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. So let me give you a little context surrounding what's happening here. We know that this pool at Bethesda is a real location. In fact, if you visit Jerusalem, I wouldn't recommend it today, but if you visit Jerusalem near the famous echo chamber at the Church of St. Anne, these pools in the five colonnades have been fully excavated. You can go home and Google, you can see this place. And what was going on is that there was a general understanding at the time The reason there was such a large number of blind, lame, and paralyzed individuals was that if the waters of the pool of Bethesda stirred, the first person who managed to get into the water was healed. Now, your Bible, like mine, may have verse 4 missing. I don't know if you noticed that, that there isn't a verse 4 in your Bible, but what mine does is it puts it in the subscript. Right, So this is how it would read. If It's actually a, the, the second part of three into four. It says, within these lay a large number of disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Here's the part that might be in your subscript. Waiting for the moving of the waters because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment he had. Now, if you're rocking the King James Version, it's right there in your Bible. If you're rocking almost any other version, it's probably not there. And the reason your Bible may not have them listed in the text is because it's a common understanding that 3b, verse 3b and verse 4, wasn't written by John. Most believe, myself included, there's evidence for this, that a later scribe added these into the story. Because the early manuscripts we have of John's gospel don't have the second part of verse 3 and verse 4. However, we do know from the text that John did author that people believed that there was a supernatural healing when the waters were stirred. Because we see it in verse 7. 
Right, sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. So this man believed that if he could just get into the water when the water was stirred, he could be healed. This seemed to be a common belief, which likely was based on something, that when the water stirred, a miracle would occur for whoever got in. Now, this is a little tangent, but I want to chase the tangent, and I'm standing up here, so I'm going to do it. I think it is somewhat relevant to where we're going, though. I find it interesting, though, that when you read commentaries on this, how quickly they're willing to dismiss the supernatural. For example, one commentary I read basically argued that what was most likely occurring was that the water was being stirred by a natural phenomenon, that the pool was periodically infused with an influx of spring water that came up from the ground and it gave the appearance of water being stirred and whoever got in it might feel better, probably a placebo effect, but they weren't actually here. First off, I have no idea where they get that information from. But second and more importantly, let me just say this, we don't need to be afraid of the supernatural in the Bible. Right, let me, let me say it like this. While we may occupy the physical realm where we are made in God's image and meant to be his representatives here on earth, that does not dismiss or replace the fact that there is a spiritual realm as well. And oftentimes, church, hear me, we miss out on the wonders of our faith because we sanitize our faith with rationalization. In other words, everything God does doesn't have to make sense to you. And if the only things you acknowledge as truth are the things that you can understand and rationalize, you're going to miss out on the beauty of God because a God that you can fully rationalize is not a God worth worshiping. There's supposed to be some mystery. Let let me give you another example, kind of what I'm talking about. Like so many of us read texts like this about the physical healing of a disabled man and we're only looking for the spiritual lesson, Mm. right? Like, Just like Jesus healed this man physically, he can heal you spiritually if you believe in him. Listen, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm literally going to make that point at the end of the sermon. Spoiler alert, that's the end. There's nothing wrong with that. Again, I'm going to make that point. But we see more than that. Like, yes, Jesus cares about the man's soul, and he's going to pursue it in just a few verses. But here in this moment, we see Jesus as the God who loves a person holistically. He sees a man physically broken and he has compassion on his physical state. Because here's the rub, right? As the story comes to a close, we have no evidence that this man was actually spiritually healed. In fact, I believe the case was most likely that there was no spiritual healing at all for him. It was just a physical healing. And what if in our attempt to sanitize the supernatural we miss out on some important lessons. And let me give it to you the best I got. Just a minute, or else I'm gonna mess around and preach another sermon. I grew up in the Baptist world. All right, that's what I'm familiar with. I'm fairly Baptistic in my theology, fairly. And in spite of that, I believe in a God who cares about us holistically. I believe in a God whose ability to perform miracles is not limited to the spiritual. I believe in a God who still shows up in our mess to heal physical diseases. I believe in a God who still shows up in our physical lack to meet physical needs. I believe in a God who not only provides a way out of no way when it comes to the spiritual, but I believe in a God who can provide a way out of no way when it comes to the physical as well. I'm not saying he has to do it. I'm saying he's able to do it. And believing that God can work miracles in the physical does not in any way take away from the fact that he works miracles when it comes to our souls as well. So I say all that to say this. 
I believe there was something supernatural taking place in those waters. Maybe it wasn't a tangent at all, because here's the thing. If we fail to have a proper view of the supernatural, we will ultimately have an improper view of our situation that's likely causing our hopelessness. Say it another way. Hopelessness often occurs when our perception of the problem is greater than our perception of Jesus. Because that's exactly what we see with this man at the pool. Go back to the man's response in verse 7. I think it's still up on the screen. Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. So don't miss this. This man has been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus says, do you want to be made well? The first thing the man looks at is the obstacle in front of him. Now, all indication from the text points to the idea that this man has no idea who Jesus is. We actually see that later. Remember, because the, the, the religious leaders ask him, who was this person who healed you? And he's like, I got no clue. He disappeared before I got a chance to talk to him. But even more, right? Everyone who has encountered Jesus up until this point has heard some things about Jesus. They've understood that he could heal the sick, give sight to the blind, that Jesus could turn water into wine and keep the party going. There was something about this Jesus. But this man doesn't know anything about Jesus. He doesn't know what he can do. He only sees his obstacle. How can I be made well? No one's going to put me in the water. Can I present to you this morning... That even for those of us who are Christians, there is a temptation for us to fail to remember who our Jesus is and what he can do and only see our obstacles. Or maybe it's not that we fail to see Jesus at all. Maybe it's that we see his power so limited when it comes to the magnitude of our situation that we don't actually believe he can do anything. And when this happens, hopelessness is bound to ensue. But can I tell you the good news? Not only is Jesus not deterred by our mess, Jesus isn't deterred by our faithlessness. Notice how the man does not recognize Jesus, shows no inclination of faith whatsoever, sees his obstacle as too great, and still Jesus moves towards this man. Let me say it like this. While your hopelessness may depend on your faith, Jesus' power does not. And ignoring this man's lack of faith. Look at what Jesus says in verses 8 and 9. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And instantly the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now I need you to see the beauty of this. A couple things. First, once again, Jesus didn't need the man to have faith to experience the physical healing. Jesus' power to heal was not dependent on the degree of the man's faith. Jesus heals because he's compassionate. Jesus, like the Father, loves the world that he created. He loves the people, and he hates the devastation that sin has caused. And I just I need to remind you this morning, church, something that we... We would all do well to remember Jesus' love for us has never been based on our performance. Yeah. Jesus loves us because we are his creation. 
We bear his image, and despite the mess we so often create in our own lives, oh, how he loves us. And here's why that's so significant. Because for some of us in this room, hopelessness is not at all the result of external circumstances. Sometimes hopelessness is the result of an internal struggle. I'm just going to be transparent with you, mostly family this morning. I try to be honest with you about my struggles in case you forget that the Lord did not call us to be pastors because we are perfect men. The Lord called us because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And we got a lot of weakness. I've been wrestling with the Lord recently, like real wrestling. Uh, I told some of the pastors uh, this morning, like I... Like, I'm, I'm keenly aware that I'm over-emotional because I, like, went to bed at midnight and at 4 o'clock I just gave up and went and watched a movie because I couldn't fall asleep. And I know, I didn't share this with them, I know it was because I needed to deal with some stuff with the Lord and I just didn't want to. And then I got to stand up here and preach this to you. But one of the things that the Lord has been revealing to me, actually, I, I couldn't put a finger on it until this week. Pastor Jesse was like, hey, you got to listen to this guy some. I listen to a lot of his sermons. I don't really listen to him that much. So I was like, All right, I'm just going to pick a random sermon and listen to it. And he said a line in there. I was listening to it as I was driving, and I literally just pulled over and wept on the side of the road because I was like, oh, this is me. And he said, it's easier for me to believe that I'm useful to God than that I'm actually loved by God. And I think that's my struggle, that I believe that I'm useful right? Like he's gifted me and and I'm good at what I do, but I struggle to believe he actually loves me. And this story is a beautiful picture and a reminder to me that Jesus loves even when we're still messed up, that he loved us before he healed us, and that he doesn't, he doesn't love us based on our performance, Because even if I couldn't perform, he would still love me. Oh, how he loves us. But there's more. Because notice this. All Jesus had to do was speak, and the man was healed. Like, you've heard it from me so many times before, church. There's power in the words of Jesus. Do I need to do it again? I mean, like when God speaks, lifeless clay breathes the breath of life. When God speaks, nations fall. When God speaks, mountains shakes. When God speaks, his enemies tremble. When God speaks, salvation shows up. There is enough power in the words of Jesus to overcome any obstacle that we may be facing. There's enough power in the words of Jesus to remove any heartache that you are feeling right now. There is enough power in the words of Jesus to give life to dry bones. But don't miss this. I love it. When Jesus speaks to the man, he commands him to get up. But with the command comes the power to do it. I mean, did you catch it? Jesus calls the man to do something he cannot do in his own power. But when Jesus calls, he supplies the power needed for the command to be fulfilled. There is enough power in the words of Jesus, not only to call you to do extraordinary things, but to equip you to do those extraordinary things. Listen, Noah didn't build an ark out of his own strength. Moses didn't free the Israelites by his own might. Deborah didn't judge based on her own wisdom and insight. David didn't conquer Goliath because of his skills in battle. Nehemiah didn't rebuild the walls of Jerusalem because he had a great architectural background. Everything great that we see in the Bible is because God not only calls, but he empowers. 
Here's the thing that I've learned as I've walked with Jesus a little bit. He has never yet called me to do something that he hasn't equipped me with his power to do. And so what that means is that if I cannot do what I'm attempting to do, it means one of two things. Either I'm not called to do it or I'm trying to do it in my own strength. So let me make it as plain as I can. The beauty of walking in obedience to Jesus, which we are called to do, is that you don't have to be strong all by yourself. Because the same God that saved you is the same God whose spirit empowers you. I mean, this should provide us with at least a little bit of hope. That by the power of the spirit, that sin that you are battling can be overcome. That by the power of the spirit, the ministry God has called you to is possible. That by the power of the Spirit, we are able to look more like Jesus every day. And this story, the story of this man, is a living, breathing picture of the truth that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. By his strength and power, not yours. So Jesus tells this man to pick up his mat and walk. And instantly the man got well. He picked up his mat and he walked. Now, all this happened on the Sabbath. So let me read what comes next. We're actually not going to talk about that too much because it's going to be kind of our introduction to the sermon next week of why these, these multiple mentions of the Sabbath. But I just want to read you what comes next. So pick up with me in verse 10. It says, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. It is interesting to me that they miss the joy of healing because they're so religious. That's an, uh, we'll get to that. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is the man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? They asked, but the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Here's what I want you to see, though, is verse 14. It says, after this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. So here we do see Jesus not only caring about the physical well-being of the man, but also of the spiritual well-being. Jesus is concerned with the man's eternal state because Jesus knows that physical healing without spiritual renewal will still lead to a far worse outcome than being physically disabled. And what Jesus knows is that the hope that we have is not ultimately that Jesus has the power to get this man up, but that Jesus has the power to get himself up. That's the gospel that we believe, isn't it? That our sin separated us from God. And he loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that we should have lived, to die the death that we deserve to die. He was crucified, he was buried, and on the third day, Jesus himself testifies that he will raise himself up. We know that our hope is ultimately found in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But here's where I want to end this sermon. Told you I'd keep it short since we had a members meeting. 
At the very beginning of this encounter, Jesus asks the man a question. It's a profound question. Sees this man, 38 years, lying by this pool. And what does Jesus say? Do you want to be made well? I've been a pastor for about 15 years now. I've been on a lot of hospital visits. It has never been my opening line (laughs) when the person is in the hospital to start with, do you want to be made well? Seems like that's a given, right? So why would Jesus ask this question? It's a profound question. Because what we've seen in that story is there is enough power in the word of Jesus to give hope to the hopeless. There's enough power in the words of Jesus to heal the physically broken. There's enough power in the words of Jesus to heal the spiritually broken. But the question remains, do you want to be made well? Here's why that question is so profound. Because what Jesus was asking the man, do you want me to change everything you've ever known? Because sometimes hopelessness is more familiar than hope. And it's easier to stay in the pain we know than the uncertainty of what we don't. And so Jesus says, do you want to be made well? Think about it. This man has been lying at this pool for 38 years. One scholar, I appreciate his commentary. He said, man, being a beggar was, you could make a good living. And Jesus knows that if I heal you, everything will change. You're probably not going to be able to beg for money anymore because no one's going to give money to a perfectly healthy man. You're probably going to have to find some new friends because these hundreds of people might be a little irritated that I healed you and not them. You're going to have to learn to interact with some people that you've never had to interact with before. You couldn't go in the temple before. What's your excuse now? And the question that Jesus is asking is, yeah, I offer hope, but I need you to answer this. Do you want me to change everything you've ever known? Can I offer to you this morning, church, that Jesus asked that same question to each and every one of us? I'm not just talking about the unbeliever. Listen, if you are here and you don't know Jesus, that question is for you. Do you want to be made well? Because your sin separates you from God. But Jesus has provided hope and a way to salvation through his death and resurrection. And by placing your faith in him and repenting of your sins, you can have the eternal hope of life with God for all of eternity. That question is for you. But Christian, that question is for you as well. Do you want to be made well? Jesus has the power to heal. There is hope in obedience. There is power in obedience. But do we want to be made well? And that's the question I think we have to wrestle with this morning. Do you want to be made well? But there is hope for the hopeless. And if you ever need a reminder of the hope that we have in Christ, we need only to look to the cross and the empty tomb And be reminded of just how much God loves us. And in that love, there is eternal hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your constant testimonies to us of just how much you love us. God, I thank you that your power has never depended on our faith. 
God, that you have enough power in your word to give life, to heal, to restore, to reconcile. God, there's enough power in your words to heal some of those diseases that the doctor said there's nothing left to do. There's enough power to overcome some situations that there just seems like there's no way out. But what we praise you for the most is that there's enough power in those words to still save souls. And we just thank you for that. Thank you that you are God who still works miracles. I pray, Lord, that even if we are in hopelessness, we would see the hope that's extended to us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.